Well, folks, if you're not subscribing to New Polity Magazine, you are just eating the table scraps of podcast conversations based on better, more thoughtful feasts. You could subscribe right now and be reading some of the greatest stuff. Instead, look at you, plugged into the tube again. <laughs> Pathetic. <laughs> subscribe now. New Polity Magazine. Hello, everyone. Welcome to New Polity's <laughs> podcast, Good Cities. This is our last episode. I'm here with Nathan and Jacob. <laughs> Uh, you, keep, you keep like not looking at the right one. Well, it's it's yeah. difficult. I actually, yeah. <laughs> he yeah. is Nathan. I'm Jacob. Look, you're both like engineers, and that creates a sort of common appearance. I just <laughs> my, my civil engineering people. All right, then. a common glazed over look, which is great because that's just the look we need for this last episode. You guys told me, and I believe you, that you're going to discuss some practical elements of city building, some practical elements of. Uh, difficulties that you might face, but also organizations you might look to help or to be helped by within cities and a little bit about what you're doing specifically. Mm -hmm. So we're going to hopefully start to answer that perennial question of what do we we do? I know it's very frustrating. You spend all your life telling people what's wrong. And the only thing they can think to say is, well, what do I do then? It's like, (laughs) like you don't even appreciate my work. (laughs) So um, against all tradition, we're going to start with Jacob. Whoa. Yeah, innovators here. Truly. With the innovators within the tradition. Yes. yes. So we want uh, well, something that brings both Nathan and, Nathan and I together is, yes, we're both civil engineers, um, but also hey, we're Catholics, as we've mentioned. But we, we've been doing things within our respective towns of, for me, Steubenville, and for Nathan, Chattanooga, um, things motivated from our, our Catholic faith in terms of civic involvement and engagement, which... Uh, we're helped by with our, our perspective from engineering, but these are things that are really just from our persons. And so we will be talking about those practical experiences and how they've introduced us to our cities. What are some of the common organizations, entities, institutions within your own cities that you'll encounter, how you can perhaps join them, work with them to make a strong town, to make a good city. So for me, um, I'm going to be talking about the local chapter of the Strong Towns group that we've started here in Steubenville called Strong Towns Steubenville. A great name, I know, super original. Hey man, branding is ruthless. You, mm-hmm. you know, you got to grab it where it is. We've mentioned Strong Towns a lot within this podcast, um, but just for the overview, Strong Towns is a media advocacy organization. It is a national nonprofit which has been around. Actually, don't know how long the nonprofit's been around, but its founder, Chuck Marone, who is a civil engineer, has been writing on city building, good financial management of cities, and really something that his, his writing and then the writing of the people who've joined him within the now incorporated Strongtown's nonprofit is something that Nathan and I have drank from heavily and informs a lot of our um, thinking on cities. And... One of the things that Strong Towns has are local conversations. Local conversations are autonomous groups that, uh, it's very easy to start one of these things, actually. The requirements are that you have three or more people who have met at least once to talk about implementing Strong Strong Towns principles within your community. So that's a pretty easy bar to meet if you just need to get three people have met once. And there's no, we're not a nonprofit. We're just a group of active citizens within our community who are trying to 
impact uh, the town and improve it by promoting strong towns principles. And I'm, um, I'll talk about those principles more incidentally to the action that we've done. I'll let I'll let our listeners. Um, and we'll, we'll have some great links at the end and books recommendations at the end to get really into the weeds of some of those principles, things that we've already hinted at within this podcast. But uh, I've formed this formed this local conversation after coming back from the National Strong Towns Conference that they had in May of this year in uh, Charlotte, North Carolina. And so it's relatively new. But before starting this organization that's brought a lot of people together to act in a civic way, I want to preface with what happened before that um, and not just tell the success stories. I moved to Steubenville in May of 2021 um, following my service within the Air Force and was personally a bit disillusioned by, um, I don't know, the liberal order. You remember meeting me. Was he was a, disillusioned with the liberal order. I was disillusioned. <laughs> I was there. He was there. One of the first people that I, I mean, I, I lived next to Mark for the first three and a half months that I was in town in a spare bedroom of a very gracious family's house. Um, I didn't want to get right back into engineering after the Air Force. I, I suppose you could call it my post-collegiate gap year. I was able to get a job working with friends of the pod, uh, working alongside them, Sean and Beth Doherty, with a local um, Methodist nonprofit in town called the Urban Mission. They are uh, quite the movers and shakers in town. They've been around since the 60s and have acquired a lot of property, and they had acquired what was Steubenville's own old train station that is now two acres of just greened-over space and wanted to start an urban garden there. So I had no skill gardening whatsoever, but I was hired and started working for about the first year of getting to engage the community in a very organic way um, and discovering the various other institutions that were in town. Um, was able to work with the Harmonium Project, was able to work with um, some of the various churches in town. But I spent my first year in Steubenville Thankfully, and I, I had the ability to do this based off of my just state in life, um, living very simply with this work and just involving myself with the local happenings. After that year, I was less disillusioned with my, I was still, I wouldn't say I was disillusioned with liberalism anymore. My, my illusions were, I understood the illusions and uh, I decided to march through it. Got an engineering job, been working a conventional and civil engineering consultant work, but still with the focus of how can we do things to improve Steubenville. Um, we have a lot of, you know, a lot of families moving here, um, predominantly Catholic families for the community. And so I, some of the things that I just felt motivated to start to do was try to start a welcoming ministry at my parish at St. Peter's, um, was able to help move in a couple new families when they first got the U-Haul to their house and just unloaded it. Um, was able to help with the Harmonium Project, which I had been volunteering with since I got to town. And sort of serendipitously, uh, after helping with the First Fridays predominantly for about two years, um, started to gain more solidity in town or solidness in town and just wanted to start attending, wanted to start to attend city council meetings. Those were unfortunately on the same nights as our Harmonium core team meetings. And so 
to wed the two together, I just kind of said, Mark, I'd, I'd like to be Harmonium City Council liaison. And you said, we need eyes on the ground. Sure. Um, yeah. So I just started attending city council meetings and bringing people along. And having been in Steubenville for about two years, and most importantly, having made friends in Steubenville for those two years, meeting young people, young families, uh, townies and long timers who had a real commitment to Steubenville, um, wanting to raise their families here and wanting to see the betterment of the town, um, we became friends because of this common vision and worked together in all these various endeavors. But these friendships which were already there. And so coming back from May, coming back from the conference, the Strong Towns Conference in May, I already had a sense of friends who I'd been working with in various projects before who had a commitment to the town who were not, you know, as uh, we're not totally orange pilled as any not just bikes <laughs> listeners would would hear. You know, some of them had listened to Strong Towns materials or not just bikes materials. But for the most part, we're just people who had to care for the town were people that were my friends. And I just tapped a few people. Um not in a way of not not in a way that the group isn't open to others, but that I just knew people in my life who we would work well together with, and presented to them some of the core visions, the vision of strong towns and some of its principles, and a lot of them were on board. And what I recognized from this is that we had these friendships established beforehand that we we were wanting to grow to deepen and to protect. And when I started talking about bike lanes and minimum curb radii, you know, it wasn't like I had just messaged these people on Facebook or found each other in a Discord talking about strong towns. These are people we, I'd lived with for two years. And when I started mentioning these things, I've, I was able to phrase them in such a way as that they affect our life together. Mm-hmm. And that it isn't just what well, I'm really passionate about you know, getting the road diet approved on sunset. And that's what I want to do. It's, we can't safely walk, you know, walk around our neighborhood because of the the speed or the, the designs of these streets and roads. Um, we can't develop the housing that we crucially need to meet these new people moving to the community because of archaic zoning requirements. And this affects our life together, which thanks be to God, we had a life together already. Mm-hmm. And so people started hopping on board with Strong Towns because they were my friend. And um, and we wanted continually to bring people into that friendship. Um, but it, the one thing binding us wasn't only that we had read Strong Towns. And actually, it wasn't the predominant thing. Um, uh, a lot of a lot of the people involved, not all of them, but are friends from church, and so we have that um, we have that grace of being able to have our have the most important thing in common, and we're all able to move from building the city from that mm-hmm. um, Catholic worldview, and so practically, we we just met. We've met a few times and decided what are the, some of the things that we want to do. And we simultaneously realized inviting people into that friendship before just, you know, opening up their gullet and giving them strong towns. Drinking from the fire hose yeah. of zoning regulations and 
city finance. <laughs> how do you how do you just show them that our life together is a good thing, um, and and that your life together is influenced by the physical structure of the city? It's an in. incarnate. It's an incarnate yeah. life. Yeah. Let's do a bike ride. <laughs> um, let's just go and do a bike ride around our downtown. If it might have been mentioned on the podcast in kind of antidotal ways, but here in Steubenville, we've had a lot of um, push, at least in terms of just local people and some energies of trying to get uh, better bike infrastructure. In Steubenville, we have the possibility of a national trail coming through Steubenville that would really um, bring a lot of vibrancy to the bike community here and could grow our bike community. But there's been slow action in terms of getting our city council, getting other pertinent authorities, county authorities, planning authorities to get on board with this. And so through my involvement with Harmonium, I was able to meet our county, uh, the Jefferson County General Health District guy, um, the county health commissioner. Every county has one of these things, one of these entities, and they really exist to ensure the health of the county. They were big in COVID. <laughs> um, but our, our county health commissioner is big on a fancy Seattle million dollar word called active transportation, which really just means getting around without using a car, walking, biking, unicycling, rollerblading, <laughs> you name it. And so he's been advocating for um, trying to get um, state money to uh, improve some of the bike infrastructure we have in town. We met during one of these advocacy meetings and after the strong towns conference about a month later i reached back out to him and said hey i'm forming or i'm trying to form this local group would you be interested in doing a community bike ride together we'd love to do our bike ride on the proposed route or on the route that the proposed infrastructure investments are to go on Mm. and he said yeah and so we started as the Strong Towns core team, making flyers, reaching out to our local newspaper, getting stories run on Strong Towns, helping explain to our community what it is, and then also presenting, uh, yeah, giving the bike ride a date. Our first date was um, end of July. We were so excited, got rained out. <laughs> um, and we, we had to make the call literally the hour before, um, but it got rained out. and. So quite disappointed. However, we rescheduled it for two weeks later and continued our push on promoting the ride. We tabled at the uh, August 1st Friday with new rescheduled flyers. And I think we set the date for August 12th. So this was rather recent. We had over 40 people show up to that bike ride and um, cycled the city. I think the the Monday paper of which we made the headline for said, Cycle the City Storms, Steubensville Streets. <laughs> um, and we wanted to show people that, or we, want, we wanted to show people what it could be like to have this infrastructure. Um, but we wanted to give them something to do and mm-hmm. to be able to encounter one another. And this is, uh, this, is in, this is the same thing, or these types of community engagement work is analogous to the infrastructure investment that Chuck Marone speaks about in Strong Towns of Small Bets. Some people were asking, you know, are you going to do bike raffles for those people who don't have bikes, or will you be supplying bikes for those people who don't? No. 
<laughs> you know, uh, we, we were able to get some refreshments that the county health, health the county health commissioner was able to provide. But this was simply a bike ride with granola bars and yeah. water. Uh, it's end. definitely something I've learned through any kind of civic engagement that like the temptation is often to attract more people by finding some money and making your thing better. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think this is usually a mistake because precisely because city building meets real needs with real resources and it happens incrementally incrementally. And so even on a very small level, the moment that you get like, you know, you're, you're super excited. You've got your like $5,000 grant from whoever to do X. Um, well, that's not from your community. And what can happen is after the provision of the grant, I'm not saying all grants are bad or something like that, just most of them, but, um, you can create an expectation of a certain kind of like entertaining or uh, sort of commodification yeah. of the thing. Yeah. And it makes people feel good in one way. Like they are, they like you mm-hmm. they look at that. He provided the food and the music and the, and the beer and everything. But then at the same time, you, they enter into a mode where they're more passive recipients yeah. of a commodity. You just provided it because you had access to money that they don't. Mm. But what we need to do is build institutions that, um, are very realistic to what we actually have so that people can feel tangibly their own participation in it and their own power. It's like, oh, yeah, this is granola bars and bikes. Like, I can do this. Yeah. Um, not, hey, this seems to be coming from above in some manner. How lucky I am to be able to, to participate it. and to receive it. It, yeah. and it was interesting. I was able to come on the second bike ride, which we was all hosted just a few days ago. A few days ago, and, and it was great. It was smaller, but it was still a really great group of people and and it was very quickly obvious this is not i mean we've talked about strong towns as an organization that has this thought on cities and all of these analyses on you know city finances and zoning and all this kind of stuff it get they get in the weeds it is an organization that that you can really dive in deep and learn a lot but at the end of the day all you need to do you, you need people who understand these things. You need a few of them just yeah. to kind of help navigate it. Mm-hmm. But you need a group of people who are friends who understand how infrastructure affects the friendship. And it was very clear from the bike ride that most of the people there probably had no idea what a zoning setback was or how, uh, you know, suburban taxation is a is a growth Ponzi scheme. Like it's it, it's value not, per acre. They're like what? yeah, what? none of that yeah. none of that mattered. And it was wonderful. It was human. It was just let's make friends and orient our friendship towards the good of the city. Mm-hmm. And entering into this virtuous cycle as we build our friendships, we build up the city. And then the city itself, the physical structure of the city opens up opportunities to build further friendships. Yeah, so, it allows you to recognize the needs just by, um, well, what, one thing that I see from your example here that I've also learned from acting in the city is the value of sacramental acts. Hmm. Um, so you described riding a bike on a route of a proposed bike improvement lane. Yes. Why? Well, it's to get people who can experience what it would be like, you know, Mm -hmm. if we were to uh, improve it and to actually feel the need for the improvement, even Mm -hmm. like civic revitalization should not be afraid of, of 
of danger because so often the danger is precisely the thing that that's supposed to be addressed. And, and so sometimes we get this idea that we can't do something because, and so for instance, like when we started doing festivals in the downtown, it was like, well, the downtown's, you know, very poverty stricken, dangerous. You might get mugged, there's drugs, etc. And it's tempting to be like, okay, well, what things can we do? What capital can we find to sort of negate those problems? Maybe we find a different space, maybe we hire security or something like that. And it's hard to say no, especially within a, a, a culture of litigation mm-hmm. where you're always not really afraid of the thing, but of being sued for not taking care of the thing, which is the worst thing in the world. But to not be afraid to bring people into contact with precisely those problems, even when it's sort of shameful, like, oh yeah, my city has this. Like, oh yeah, we did put that highway right through here and we're gonna go try to bike across it. And yeah, it's gonna kind of put your kids in danger and it's gonna be a little risky. It's like the the way our world works is it devastates communities and then it gives us more TV shows so that we're entertained and we're like kept kind of placid, even though we're living in some kind of hellscape of, mm-hmm. of, of bad design and bad decision and careless um, wreckage. Mm-hmm. So the sacramental approach is to say, what can we do that makes the thing present now, even mm-hmm. though it has a kind of eschatological fulfillment that isn't there? You can bike now, even though precisely as biking, you realize the total inadequacy of mm-hmm. the biking infrastructure. And for us, it was first Fridays on 4th Street. We have this downtown where you know more than every other building is vacant when we first started. Now we could have said, you know, well, let's work on the buildings and then eventually we'll have a downtown where we can do a festival. But instead what we said is, well, let's pretend that the downtown is already restored. Mm-hmm. Let's imminentize the eschaton here. <laughs> uh, <laughs> not always recommended, but. Uh, and so what we did is we got food trucks and, and vendors to set up precisely in the vacant storefront so that when you walked down the street, you had a kind of Disneyland experience of success. Namely, you walk down, hey, look, that has something going on next to that. It's going on and there's something going on here. And there's a, oh, look, there's a restaurant in the building, not just something in front of the building. Now, of course, if you squint, you can see through the cracks. Like there's a hot dog vendor, but he's right in front of a dilapidated building. There's a brick about to fall on his head from the top and it needs care. But the value of just saying, no, we're going to go experience the decline and the risk and we're going to try living as if it weren't there allows people to see and feel the steps necessary to get from point A to point B. Yeah. Um, I like that. Yeah, it's, it's the act of love that has to precede the cool. actual physical act of care. Yeah. Something. Totally. Yeah. Something that we're advocating for as part of the Strong Towns group is um, it also goes along with that 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 bike path is Franciscan has a development that is down That's the hill. That's a university in our town, by the way. Yeah. Fran- <laughs> Might not know. Yeah. Franciscan University, Catholic University in Steubenville, um, has a uh, sort of uh, development down the hill from the main university. And when they built it, they dead-ended a existing road that ran parallel to University Boulevard, which is the main, or Avenue Boulevard, which one? I don't know. Boulevard. Boulevard. University Boulevard, which is now how you access this development. Well, that University Boulevard is also the another proposed bike route to be able, or bikeway, to be able to get uphill to the uptown. And it's... It's very dangerous to be able to bike on that. 
um, everyone who bikes around there bikes on the sidewalk simply because the cars are coming too fast and the grade is just too steep. However, when you go to where the road that they dead-ended for that development is, you can see what we call desire lines or desire paths. You see where the grass has been trotted down and people are actively still walking, just walking, from the dead-ended road to the development. And you'd be surprised what a simple email could do just reaching out to the right people. We met with um, myself and a few other Strong Towns people, met with the community outreach guy, Franciscan, and saying, hey, would you be interested in putting a like a bike path? Because we could also show it's not just biking for health, it's biking for being able to make a useful journey up and downhill, um, allowing university students to more safely get to the downtown and the growth that's happening there. But putting a bike path through the development that Franciscan has allows for increased in frequency of some of the businesses that are there. More people will be able to just pass by Brooklyn Bagel and get some coffee. And it might sound silly, and perhaps in some ways it is, but you are connecting the city more and giving a lot more serendipitous opportunities to meet one another um, by simply just putting down some asphalt um, where there's now just a gravel path. And so to the point of sacramentalizing and showing what, to an extent, what already is there, making present what already is, or making present what is, we have... um, we have a member of the Strong Towns group who wants to do a walkabout from uh, Franciscan down to First Friday and just bring people down this Friday and they're going to just go walk on the desire path so mm-hmm. people can see, we might not be able to bike here right now, but you can totally walk there. Mm-hmm. And uh, she wants to make this a regular a regular event. Totally. I think um, two things. One is that it's very good to remember that all of this stuff is very fun because sometimes I, this never really plagued me, but I realize in, in conversation with others that, that this exists and, and sometimes within an older generation, but there are people who are very ashamed of their cities. They're very ashamed that they are not some other city. Hmm. Um, and they are very ashamed of blight and of any kind of um, failure or bad design and this creates a certain kind of civic type that I think we've all met. He's the guy who's really involved and knows everything that's going on and knows all the council members and hates all of them, <laughs> right? Like it's a it's sort of a morbid passion yeah. to be so aware of what's wrong with the city precisely in order to complain about it. Um, and of course, social media has made made him a kind of um, a regular fixture. And we can appreciate him as a type uh, and, and one way to live a human life. But... Life is really fun. Hmm. And one of the things that makes it fun is when things uh, go all wrong and ass backwards. Because then you get to really clearly realize yourself as someone who is sort of navigating more of an adventure than mm-hmm. just a passive reception of a commodity. And so these types of things, I mean, often I've found this. It's like, well, we don't want people to walk um, in this area because it's not very well kept and they're going to see this. But it's like take the precise opposite attitude, like have an adventure and realize how this area is full of potential mm-hmm. um, because people more than they want a kind of clean, passive 
uh, comfortable consumption of, of well-designed commodities. They want to be heroes and they want to live and they want to be proud of themselves. Mm -hmm. And putting them in touch with those points of life in which there's something to do here. Mm -hmm. And it actually does rely on you because look at how badly it's being kept up by whoever it's apparently relying on um, is actually a great joy to them. Now, the other thing I was going to say is you mentioned just you don't know the power of an email. I wanted to know from both of you because you've worked in these civic institutions what your experience has been because I think a lot of people have barrier to civic engagement. And one of the temptations to just say, let the city be the city. I'm just going to be you know, a faithful Christian in my home and just deal with it. Um, is the idea that these institutions are somehow hermetically sealed from mm. your influence? And indeed, everything within modern city uh, sort of hiring and, and, and structuring seems to suggest that the whole thing is run by experts. Every from from water to street department to the council itself, it's a process of of management that people even go to college for sometimes to get the careers that they have within the city. And so, what on earth could a citizen sort of do? I mean, isn't it kind of a romanticism from a bygone era that they're going to listen to your email and do something? What's your experience been there in, in that regard? Yeah, I mean, that's a really good lead into. Something we've already talked about on this podcast, so I'm not going to speak on it at length. If you want the full story, go listen to the local power episode from a year, year and a half ago. But on the side in Chattanooga, I run a, it started as just a podcast. It's since expanded into a couple different things, but Chattanooga Civics is what I call it. And the idea, the fundamental idea is to break down that barrier that people feel between their their own lives and the government as somehow some separate entity mm -hmm. and because people feel that way it's led to what i can only consider an abdication of the power that we're supposed to be partaking in mm -hmm. um, as by virtue of living in a place you have a power to affect change there mm -hmm. either through forming groups of friendship that are also educating one another on the space of the city and how it impacts our lives or through policy. Um, we all have that power. And I think there's an obligation really to use it for the common good. And so what I started, started as just a podcast interviewing different civic leaders to help explain what exactly it is they do. Because you hear, hey, I'm the department head for public works. I'm the wastewater division manager. I'm the equity and inclusion officer. Like, what does any of that mean? People hear that and they have some vague idea. Um, but, but most people really don't have the cities don't do a good job publishing what it is exactly these positions do and how they're actually connected to the real life of people in the city. And what I have found, and this may be something peculiar to Chattanooga, mm -hmm. but I really hope it's not. Most people who work in local government are actually quite passionate about what they do. And they're passionate about what they do specifically because they they believe that what they're doing is helping their neighbor mm -hmm. in some 
some way. And some of these positions do require more specialization, more, uh, you know, a very specific degree with very specific knowledge that is just not clear to the average person and never will be. And it doesn't need to be. Um, but what there does need to be is an understanding that these people are doing a job for the good of the city, ideally. And almost everyone I've talked to has been incredibly excited to share what they do. Mm-hmm. Um, that that power of an email is is has been incredibly successful for me. I've yeah. I've run into a few people who do hold themselves as kind of this high and mighty. I'm the expert, yeah. and whatever I say is is rule. And there's nothing you can do about it. But for the most part, people are very excited to make their cities better places and to receive input. And so breaking down that barrier, pulling back that curtain to say, here is what your city is doing. It's, it's really not that difficult to, to do something like this. It's, it's literally just sitting down with someone and having a conversation. You put a couple microphones in front of you and you say, okay, hey, nice to meet you. You're the public works director. What does that mean? Mm-hmm. Okay, you're telling me about uh, road budgets and pavement and sidewalks. So why does the city choose to put roads and sidewalks here instead of there? And not in a system of, of judgment. Mm-hmm. Like you're talking about just kind of local crank that everyone has who's mm-hmm. just, you know, everything the city does is wrong. Mm-hmm. And I know all about it and I'm just really angry about mm-hmm. it. Instead of taking that attitude, just take an open attitude and ask what is happening and, and they're usually more than happy to explain it. Yeah. And I found the other phenomenon is that in America, um, on paper, at least everyone's job in city government is justified very clearly and proudly as a service to democracy. <laughs> I mean, the reason they are doing what they're doing is ultimately because at some level it's the will of the people. Mm-hmm. Um, for it to be done. Mm-hmm. Okay, now is this always true? No. no. <laughs> However, it is rhetorically true. Like mm-hmm. This is how people justify their existence. And what you actually provide when you, um, when you begin to either agitate, hopefully positively, for particular change, for a need, is you actually enter within that American rhetoric. And it has a lot of power because... You're never just giving them, you know, some annoyance that they have to deal with. You're also giving them the chance to justify their own um, work and their own existence to themselves. Yeah. And that can be a really great gift. Yeah. Because all of a sudden, you know, here are the people and they want this particular thing and this institution is justified in its existence and its authority because it's supposed to serve the people. Mm. Um, and so... You can enter into that language, no matter how how provisional it might be, and um, I've found that yeah, people are actually delighted to um, to run with projects, and that if there's anything that if there's anything, it's like there's a structural fear of ever suggesting anything upwards. Um, that that it becomes a rarity to really ask mm-hmm. people something. And so you have to kind of push past that because at first it's going to be like, well, this doesn't really happen that people talk to the government in any way. Which is, yeah, sometimes you do deal with that. Um, yeah, some, sometimes yeah. it's harder than others. It, it's interesting. I, I find 
that language of democracy, that language of like participatory government is particularly convicting at the local level Mm -hmm. in a way that it is not at the state or national level. We can say it and some people might even believe it, but the scale is such that it becomes incredibly difficult to actually build relationship. But at the local level, you're actually, you're at the place where this language of democracy and this language of solidarity can actually start to come together. And you can start to say, hey, I, as my city council person, I see you at the grocery store. Mm-hmm. Something that I, th- I like that Strongtown says is um, we, we shouldn't think of local government as the smallest of governments like on this chain from federal, state, county, you know, region or region, county, local as the smallest, in a sense, most inferior of these hierarchies but as the level where the most complexity of politics takes place mm-hmm. and um, where it is the most most basic level where friendship can really dictate a lot of what happens. Because, I mean, as, as Chesterton said, we should keep our politicians close enough to kick them, as you've also said, as yep. close enough to hug them. Yep. Um, and it is on that local level where, I mean, literally, <laughs> um, once you know who you're, once you know who runs your city, You've attended city council a few times, and this uh, this depends very much on the scale of your community. Steubenville is a place of 17,000, 18,000 people. Um, just two days ago, I saw uh, one of our city councilors at Kroger and said hello. You know, you'll start to see people when you know who the people are, mm-hmm. and that also affords you to be able to have those serendipitous com- serendipitous conversations. This is also why bribing isn't like all bad. <laughs> You're going to have to explain that. Yeah. <laughs> no, I shouldn't have said that. Okay, I'll say it. Yeah, so, okay. Bribing is bad. <laughs> but. You're going to have to cut this. I don't know. <laughs> so, when you bribe someone, you're basically, they have a certain institutional role. Mm-hmm. And within that institutional role, there's they're, they're basically governed by some form of constitution. Um, and this can be more or less tyrannical. Like, obviously, you hope that it's a very flexible thing that is is sort of for the sake of what's below. But very often, they're dealing with a kind of unthought, uh, complex mm-hmm. code that they simply enforce as its police officers. And this is why, within American politics, often like the zoning expert mm-hmm. is like the cop for the zoning, and the building inspector is the cop for the how you build. They're then, they're literally. So one of the other things I do for Chattanooga Civics is I, I write a newsletter every week explaining what city yeah. council has done. Yeah. And all of these officers that you're talking about, they're literally unarmed special police officers. Mm-hmm. Like every few months, there will be something on the city council docket that says a resolution to authorize so-and-so as a public building inspector to be an, a special un- unarmed police officer. Oh, really? It's, wow. They're literally part of the police force. Yeah. And so this is wow. this, it's an unfortunate part of the loss of virtue as an organizing principle within society is that coercion and and coercion isn't all bad. I'm not saying that, but I am saying that coercion becomes like the institutional role in Mm -hmm. every instance. It's like, Mm -hmm. how do we get people to build? Well, at the end of the day, we point a gun at them. I'm not saying you actually have to have a gun. They're unarmed. Right. But like it's always thought within the logic that the police force is the ultimate kind of enforcement. Yeah. And so whether it's how you build or what you build or where you build or how you participate in politics, each um, sort of expert of that field is also the, the chief police officer of yeah. that field. Okay. So within this context, um, 
A bribe is essentially an appeal to an interest that the person has that isn't um, the enforcement of that particular code. So mm-hmm. it's appealing to some other interest that is not civic, that's usually personal, and it usually takes the form of money. So you say, okay, you have this basically salaried interest in saying, you know, uh, you know, this building doesn't meet zoning requirements, so it shall not pass. I'm going to appeal to some other interest because you're actually a human being, not just an enforcer of an of a abstract code. So I'm going to appeal to that other interest. Here's a thousand dollars, and I know you really want a jet ski. I don't know what do people. What do building administrators want? I don't know. No. They're perfectly happy. Okay, so you appeal to the other side. So this is the basic structure of bribing. Okay, this is why it's bad, because it perverts justice. Mm. Um, where, however, pause, there's a presumption in that, where the, the presumption is that justice is, that there is, hasn't been some sort of injustice enshrined in the, um, in the order of things. Mm-hmm. There's a presumption that what it means to order a community comes from above. And so the people who best order a community are disinterested in the community itself, but are most absent from it and its yeah. life. Mm-hmm. This that is sometimes they actually into. commute into the cities that they run in their managerial roles. And then <clears throat> as they operate on the city, they're supposed to have this kind of disinterested professional expertise. Yeah. It's mm-hmm. like, well, I'm not, I'm not in this neighborhood. And so because I'm not in this neighborhood, I can see it coolly and calmly. Like we should be allowed by law to have, you know, this rabbit breeding facility here. Okay. And they have that ability. So the theory goes precisely by a certain detachment. And and it's funny because this is always never quite true. Like this is sort of a facade in some ways because what they'll do is they'll be like, okay, we have this position open in the city. What do we do? Well, it's an objective expert level position so what we do is a nationwide search and we find who's best for the job. And so everyone who watches this thinks, aha, it's a meritocracy. We're all just after mm-hmm. the best man and the best candidate. All right, now here we go. All these people applied. We've got 30 applications. And who is it? It's the mayor's brother. He got <laughs> in. It's crazy. He's the best for the job. And and so you can see well, how. And it's funny too, because at least in Chattanooga, whenever this happens and there is a nationwide search and then someone is selected who is not from Chattanooga, Half the comments, at least, are like, "You're well, not from Chattanooga." We couldn't find anybody local. Yeah. No, like, why are we fascin- bringing this person yes, in? Yes. It's more. It's in the city more than any other People organization. People desire nepotism more that's, than you think. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's that's the thing. And, uh, nepotism has come up a lot in terms of like especially for young people realizing that these institutions are governed by you know use your use your phrase of the week old old white men whatever you, what may have you, um, but it's. I can see, and you can probably see from your city government, you can look and wonder, look at those people in council. Are they actually friends with one another? You know, besides showing up once, depending once a week, maybe once every other week, once a month, council's meetings vary per city. Are they friends, Mm -hmm. real friends with one another? And that doesn't have to mean they agree on everything, but there's both there seems to be this this fear of becoming friends with your fellow civic leaders because it has the appearance of nepotism. Yeah, um, it's and, such a fine line to cross. And mm-hmm. and I hold so I mean I'm working as a civil engineer doing consulting for 
developers, some of whom have long histories in Chattanooga, some of whom are coming to Chattanooga from from other places. And then I also hold civic roles on on a couple different boards. And then I'm also doing this like quasi-journalistic yeah. endeavor mm-hmm. with Chattanooga Civics and keeping all of these things in tension from a, a liberal, uh, you know, quasi-merocratic standpoint has caused me a lot of like internal strife of like, how do I justify this? Yeah. And it, it's exactly what you've kind of come to the conclusion of like, because I have a care for my city, I will be forming relationships with other people in my city. It's shocking. I know, mm-hmm. but like, because I love my city, I love the people of my city and vice mm-hmm. versa. And because I have these relationships, I enter into these areas all the time where the ideas of conflicts of interest, depending on how uh, abstracted you want to get, become real at every single level. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, what what should a Catholic be if not someone with the greatest immensity of conflicts of interest? Because he should be the most interested right. in everything. <laughs> and this <laughs> is if why you're it's... interested in everything, eventually you will have a conflict. If you have an opinion... On any given yeah. issue, that can be construed as a conflict of interest, and so there's obvious lines that you have to so, draw, like monetary sure. interest. Yeah. It's but good to distance to return to the from that, yeah, but to return to the specific question of, of nepotism, because we do have to bend the arc of this conversation back to to, to bribery, and and because I don't want to scandalize anyone. Um, it is the case that on the one hand nepotism actually exists. So if all you mean is that given a structure of power, the friends of the people involved in that structure of power are more likely and more often are um, taking positions and rewards and authority within that structure. Mm -hmm. I think we can all admit that simply is what happens. Mm -hmm. Um, That's human nature at work. Like it's part of the big problems of dysfunctional city governments is the desperate effort to not allow friendships to blossom. And mm-hmm. so what can ha- often happen is that a, so this happens often in cities where there's people vote for someone who has a particular plan, but then they put him within an environment that has been deliberately kept free of, well, apparently deliberately kept free of any particular um, group of friends and that's just individuals with expertise. Mm-hmm. But then what he finds is that precisely those types of things that make communication effective, that make action quick, that make um, understanding a, a process that you can get through in a day and not three years are absent. Because if there's anything that's harder to imagine, it's how do I get a room of people who I have nothing in common with and who we're all supposed to play this charade of not really loving each other to the point of any commitment. How do I get them to act in a way that's coordinated and effective and for the common good? It just seems impossible. I mean, if you look at the monarchies of Europe, you might have some trouble with them. I understand, especially if you're in the absolutist period, but (laughs) I'm thinking of like Charlemagne or something like they're nothing if not effective. But what did not happen was that the King simply entered into this like court where there was pre-existing professionals and experts that he then was suddenly the stranger managing. I mean, it's trying to turn people into machines. No, No, he brought in his boys. That's what I'm saying. He brought in his friends. And so whenever you talk about a monarchy, you're really talking about a court 
that's a group of friends. Mm-hmm. Okay, so this is I'm just trying to be Andrew Jones at this point. Like the network of friends, <laughs> yeah. network of friendship is in fact the efficacious motor of all politics. Yeah. So at some point you want to just acknowledge and say, okay, that's yes. what's happening. So what do we need? Not professional sort of distance, but we need virtuous friends. Yes. yes. What ensures that the the friendship isn't one of nepotism in the negative sense where it's like, okay, I'm bringing in my friend. It's tyranny. Yeah. Yeah, I'm bringing in my friend just because I desire my own self-aggrandizement within the situation and not because it's good for everyone. Mm -hmm. Um, That is the concern. And liberalism is in deadly fear of the possibility that, um, well, it's just in deadly uh, disbelief of the possibility that we can really be virtuous, like that there can be people in this world whose friendship actually doesn't just tangentially involve, but consists of a love for the common good Mm -hmm. together. It's like, okay, who do I want in government with me? Oh, I want the people that love the city the most. And guess what? They are my friends because that's precisely what we have in common is our love for the city. Yeah. Okay. I have to wrap this up, but the bribe thing. (laughs) So I'm I'm still not getting the, no, no, no. So the problem (laughs) is, is no, I'm not saying it's remedial. I'm saying that it's like, okay, ideally, you're in a situation where you, on some level, can't avoid bribery because I think ideally you're all involved in a common work where there is no um, sort of just doing your job that isn't in service to the common good in which you participate, right? So every appeal to a city official or to an inspector to do his job well Mm is if it's a properly ordered city that's growing and flourishing and pursuing the common good is also an appeal not to his it's always an appeal to his life in the town with you so like an obvious example is like you can't to someone who lives on the street where you're trying to build a brewery your you cannot avoid the appearance of conflict of interest and the appearance of bribery when you say hey i need your professional help, I'm going to need to move through this process quickly. You know, if you're talking to a, a, a inspector, um, he is going to have what from one perspective could be the temptation of a good that he will receive at the end of it because he belongs to the very good that you're trying to improve. And that could be perceived from one angle as a bribe. And in fact, sometimes people say this, they talk oh. like this, like, well, he's just pushing this through because it's like, he, he's going to benefit from this this thing that happens. Something that we can talk about um, but after this. that is what we should be doing. Like we should be motivating people based on the fact that they live and are rooted in a place that improves through our actions. And mm-hmm. so what we should see is people who want, yeah, to do their jobs, yeah, to some extent to, to sort of enforce the code, but who more primarily want to be happy because they're happy with everyone else involved in the city because they're... That's what they're doing. So, they're city builders. I, 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 I'll, I'll, I'll quibble with the language. And I, and I understand people do understand that as a bribe or as self-interest or conflict yeah. of interest. So I just want to draw that distinction. Um, but I think, especially at the local level, we, we still have a system where there is an outlet to remove these people who are trying to act as disinterested arbiters of some abstract code that bears no relation to the relationship of people in a city. But that requires actually paying attention and understanding the levers of power as they exist. 
but it's interesting because as soon as you start paying attention, it becomes immediately obvious who is and isn't interested in the good of the city mm-hmm. and which positions are uh, basically just self-aggrandizing authoritarians who want to, you know, I'm the expert and you need to do what I say and which positions are willing to work with you and say, what do you need? How can I help you? Yeah. You're a citizen here. Mm-hmm. I work for the government. I'm part of this city. I want to help the city flourish. It becomes immediately obvious as soon as you start paying any sort of attention whatsoever. And there's there's outlets to, to elect different people. It's just that we don't do that. It, it's literally that we don't do that because we can complain at the national level like, oh, there's all these different things, but it's so distributed. It's like we have 60% voter turnout and it's still like no one is quite sure what happened because I don't know what the people in Iowa are doing and what they care about. But at the city level, we only have like 15% voter turnout. And then we're shocked when it's, uh, you know, somebody who doesn't actually care. They just were able to spend the most money on the election. (laughs) Steubenville has our, our local elections coming up on November 7th. And we have uh, four city councilor positions that are up for election. Um, and uh, two of only two of the four are contested, um, and only contested by two people. The other two, there's only one person on the docket. You know, and we're small, but you know, it goes to show your point that the engagement. Maybe this is a, a thing that you might find in the in the case of our cities today, that when somebody shows initiative, they're one of the few who are showing initiative on the local level. So you might quickly find yourself on multiple boards within like being the point person for multiple city councilors on a particular topic. Mm -hmm. And these are relationships you need to balance. This is why we're talking of Catholic cities because it's Christ who allows us to live in virtue. Um, Because we need that virtue if we're hoping to build up these good cities. Um, But you you will quickly find yourself in conflicts of interest because you have showed initiative. Yeah. Yeah, and it seems that the the structures of our cities really do give the atmosphere of impotence. I mean, we spoke about the way cars do this. We spoke about the way zoning laws can do this. Um, and I think I've made no secret of my sense of like what seems to be the way a... Um, a hired bureaucracy as the main motor of your city as opposed to um, elected officials seems to drive a sense of uh, basically consumerism in reference mm-hmm. to the city. Like, And because of this, it's like, well, well, why vote in that circumstance? Like if, if it's just we're the inhabitants of a built place and we're not the builders of the place, then why get involved in politics? Even in the nominal sense, it's mm-hmm. like, it's it's sort of a, voting is only one part of it, but it's kind of a marker for where I think people are, um, where their heart is. Right, mm-hmm. it's not in city building, and, and so I think part of it is that you know we have the opportunity to simply act within a vacuum here, and that can be scary, but it's also very freeing mm-hmm. because you don't need to really worry about am I doing the right thing, am I calling the right person, am I on the right track. Because all of that presumes that there's this like thriving system in place that everyone's involved in, you have to find your place in it. But that's not really the scenario we're in in American politics at this glorious end of the empire. In fact, we're in a situation where you might find yourself as the only person 
uh, sort of unelected person or um, unhired person who who cares independently of uh, some kind of some kind of salary. Um, and that makes you very powerful because you can make all those mistakes and it's, it's fine. It's not a job. Like caring for your city is not a job. Mm-hmm. Um, you can just, it is, it is the telling and keeping that we were also called to. Yeah. You can just get out there and start doing things. And I mean, you'll find out when you hit obstacles or when you're accidentally breaking the law or something like that and people will sort of pull you in, but even breaking the law, it's not so bad as long as what's evident to everyone is that you love the city. Because then breaking the law is like, well, oh yeah, he broke the law, but look what he was trying to do. do you have a, do Don't do it again. Do you have a case study for us? No. <laughs> oh, okay. That's what I thought you were about to get at. Zero into. case studies. So I want to offer uh, another outlet. We've, we've been talking a lot of kind of the bureaucratic structure of the city and government and voting and, and city council and public works departments and all that stuff. And I do not want to understate how important all of that is like start educating yourself on how your local government works start understanding who is in charge of what area and and start trying to form friendships with those people or at least introduce yourself Mm -hmm. Um, show interest show initiative and what will either happen is doors will open where you will soon find yourself because you showed initiative in a, a position of influence to start to exercise virtue for the common good, Mm. or you will find out what barriers need to be brought down first for that to happen. Mm -hmm. One of the two there's, and you it's, it's then up to you how far you want to pursue it, but it starts with educating yourself on, on how your city works. Cause you have Mm. to work. We're constrained by the systems that we live in. Yeah. And if you don't understand the system that you live in, you become impotent to a certain degree. Um, but to, to, Take another step back for people who are not looking to get right into the kind of political realm, so to speak. Uh, There's another way of getting involved that I've found very helpful and has been seeing more success in Chattanooga, and that is the Neighborhood Association. And I don't know if you all have these here. This is not a homeowners association. I want to make that clear from the very beginning. So when people hear neighborhood association, they get it confused with a homeowners association. A homeowners association is an involuntary group of people. You buy a house in a certain neighborhood and you are automatically part of a homeowners association that brings with it certain legal requirements that can be enforced by a law. Like, hey, you can only paint your house one of three colors. You can only have your grass between half an inch and three quarters of an inch. You can't put a garden in your front yard, et cetera, et cetera, depending on who's in charge of of the homeowners association. That's a, a, a legal entity that exists attached to specific properties. A neighborhood association is a completely voluntary structure that is at its most fundamental and and natural level, simply a way of formalizing groups of friendship, seeking the good of a neighborhood and a way to exercise power as a neighborhood rather than as dispersed individuals. And so all it really is, is you get your neighbors together. Maybe you start with just your street or maybe you you zoom out a little bit and say, hey, this 10-block area constitutes a neighborhood and we all share something. In con- we have a shared identity as, as neighbors of this area. Come together. You can 
you know, usually these neighborhood associations, they elect leaders, but you can, there's all sorts of ways to kind of govern that body. And it's a way of lifting up the concerns of a particular neighborhood so that they can be better heard at a larger city level. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, we were talking about earlier uh, how sometimes it feels like the the ward system here, the council system, um, the district system that we have in Chattanooga still feels kind of too big. You have a representative that represents, you know, Ward 3, but Ward 3 is actually comprised of like 10 different discrete groups of people that all have their own interests. So how do you bring all that together? Well, neighborhood associations fill that gap mm-hmm. and say we're going to provide this level of formality that can then be presented to the next higher level. Mm. It's it's kind of the next natural step from the family in a system of subsidiarity and solidarity mm-hmm. to say, let's come together, work together, form relationships and friendships based on our shared neighborhood. Mm-hmm. And, and it's similar too, I mean, to the Strong Towns group because the Strong Towns group, rather than being a shared neighborhood, it's a shared interest. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's just another way of organizing and affecting power. Yeah, no, I think that that makes sense. And it does fill that gap, um, as you mentioned, between the, the family and then and then what's above, which, yes, is, is typically the ward. Uh, and it also provides people um, with, I mean, we say it's like gathering a pre-existing identity, but often within our American cities, it's a way of giving people an identity. Mm-hmm. that that mm-hmm. they've lost and longed for in some ways. Yeah. I've seen this happen quite a few times, not with the neighborhood association in particular, but, um, you know, that Christendom, the, the world, as it was sort of inspired by Christ, it's characterized in many ways. One of the ways is that it's a society of representation. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of thinkers will describe the ending of the Middle Ages as being an ending of a system of representation and at its most basic level, it's it's just the summing up of corporate bodies in a single person, or in a small group of people. But it's it's you know to be represented, and that in itself is a, a human desire mm-hmm. to both represent others and to be represented by others. That is, um, well, it's not so much quashed as it is given like very odd and ineffective outlets in America. It's like, well, okay, we can be represented by. The Republican Party platform, and maybe in some sense we're represented by our candidate. And, and I think the the major difference there is these things: the you know the party system or the council ward system. They're they're almost imposed from above. You yeah. find them set up in various documents and associations that exist outside and independent of you. Yeah, and they're like given to you, presented to you as something you can take part in, but they will exist whether or not you are actually part of it. The neighborhood association is, is more natural in that it is formed by the people at the very level it is supposed to be representing. Yeah. Right. Um, it's something they come together and lift up Mm -hmm. a person to represent them rather than being put into a neighborhood or a council ward or a council district and being offered the opportunity to select somebody. Yeah. This is something actually that we're doing with the Strong Town Studentville group. We have some uh, history-minded people who have joined our ranks and something they're really interested and in, have been doing is researching the subdivisions of Steubenville. And that, um, like we said, it's it's this 
trend within America that you can you build things to climax conditions. But it's actually important to note um, building to climax conditions can take the place as it commonly does of uh, the term we use in engineering just in building is platting, where you have land and then you impose a subdivided you know, shape strong lines it. on it. But that doesn't mean you've built everything yet. You've just laid out the land development. And so often the platting and the full building of um, neighborhoods happens simultaneously in today's market. But you can still have neighborhoods that were platted, like your neighborhood you said was platted in like the 19, 1910s, I think. 1910s. Um, you know, a lot of Steubenville neighborhoods were platted in the 1930s and 40s. And not, I mean, it depends on the neighborhood, but you can see that houses were incrementally built. Land was subdivided mm-hmm. and then purchased by small contractors then that built, you know, the old Sears house catalogs where you could actually purchase like a, a very nice prefabbed house. They come and build it. And so with that, these neighborhoods, which even look sort of like or look, our subdivisions have a very dynamic history and that neighborhood identity is, I think it's important for us to connect to what that history was beforehand, mm-hmm. discovering what what am I, you know, the past is never the past. What is it that I am standing on? Um, even though we're maybe just now starting up a neighborhood association. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it, it's different, again, from when a subdivision is built and somebody comes in and they build 200 houses and offer them for sale. This is an identity that is being offered to you from above. Mm you can come and consume this identity and be part of this neighborhood versus an earlier pattern of development was you can come and shape this neighborhood. Mm -hmm. You can buy this piece of property and there's still an element of being offered it from above because somebody else did the platting. But there's more room left open to say, here's your piece of land. You can build on it as you see fit and contribute to the neighborhood rather Mm -hmm. than simply coming in and consuming the neighborhood. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's something that the, the, that Pope Francis in Laudato Si' um, somewhere in paragraph 150, 151, a little bit of 149. I won't, I won't read it, but there is a sort of um, authority given to the obvious need to take some time to know the place before we begin uh, any kind of design or planning or um, you were mentioning something the Darties say yeah so this goes back to from a previous episode the discussion of that Nathan brought up that analogy of the city as a the city as a farm and that the Doherty's on previous episodes and if you've read the independent farmstead and any of their talks will tell you when you buy your piece of land you know, don't do anything to it for a year or don't do anything that is, has a heavy impact. Do light, light impact work. See, see what's the soil, what's the ecosystem, where's the water, where's the sun in orientation to the land. And then once you build even, don't build your dream farm or your dream barn that that's what you wanted, that's what you're going to retire into. You know, build something out of pallets. Mm-hmm. How is that going to last over the next year or two. And this gets into the small bet, the small bet thing of strong towns. We, we really don't follow this in modern construction. We just, we build, we build to the climax condition, as we've said. Um, and 
the only consideration that you have of like your observe and interact is observe the city code, the ordinances and zoning, and then interact as little as possible with the building officials so you can get that thing built like that. Mm-hmm. Um, it only becomes an interaction with the community often when you get tied up in when there's requirements that you know, require you to come and meet the community. But I think this is a, a topic we could come at in a future you know episode whenever those may come. But about um, Catholics looking to care for the common good of their city as developers, as citizen developers, mm-hmm. and that there's a respect for the city, respect for what you're building on that has to come, and the discernment of what does this community need. You you do need to be able to seek, yes, a, a venture that is going to allow you to um, return a profit so you can continue this work. But the profit comes as thing that will enable you to continue not as the reason and so there is an observant observe observant you need to be observant and interact with your community to understand what does it really need and a docility to that yeah for sure for sure well boys well are we at the end of all things here i think for so now it okay. seems all right excellent well guys thank you so much for listening to good cities we fully intend on doing a, a question and answer mm-hmm. session. Um, it'll be live streamed, so you guys can go ahead. Do and we want to say just a, like say vocally a few of those resources we want to point people to? Oh, that's right. Yes, yeah, that yeah. is a good idea. So if you want, if you're interested in kind of diving in, and we hope that the people are, what are some resources? Yeah, do you want each do three? I guess we'll just kind two. of pick a top three. Yeah, we'll, I guess I'll we'll, do. We'll put the rest in the show notes. I'm going to do we'll organiz- highlight. Three. I'm going to do some organizations and kind of groups. I'll let you do books and resources. Um, for for organizations, it's been quoted multiple times. Um, Strong Towns is an incredible place to start. Strong Towns is great for anybody at any level mm-hmm. of um, of civic involvement. You don't need to be an engineer. You don't need to be a planner to be able to get engaged with this stuff. And you might be able to find through their map of local conversations that there is a local conversation already started within your town. So Strong Towns is where I'd start. If you are listening to this and are a design professional of some type, a architect, engineer, planner, developer, etc., I'd recommend you to take a look into the Congress for the New Urbanism, which is a group that's been around for 30 years and 30 plus, and they've really been meeting the challenges of modern American sprawl um, by both advocating for the changing of the legal the legality and the legal code that requires us to build sprawl while also reigniting the imaginations of designers and builders to be able to uh, have the skills to build that um, that good city. And so um, there's a number, yeah, a number of blogs or books, and this is more in a uh, professional association that you can check more out. But Take a look at the Congress for the New Urbanism. And adjacent to the Congress for the New Urbanism is a podcast called The Embedded Church. This is a podcast that is co-hosted by Eric O. Jacobson, who is the author of a number of good books relating to Christian city building. Um, I might be stealing one book from Nathan, but he authored the book Sidewalks in the Kingdom, which is a um, the relationship of Christianity to the new urbanism. And... Um, uh, Eric isn't a Catholic, but a lot of his ideas um, 
rightfully They're sit right within a Catholic home. anthropology. Here, yeah. And it's all about interviewing various Christian communities and how they're particularly focusing from their church, how it's embedded in the built environment, in the urban fabric, mm-hmm. um, and how they're evangelizing uh, while being part of the community. And um, yeah, it's diversity of topics there. It's easy listening, but I'd, I'd highly recommend checking that out. Uh if you want a really kind of heavy philosophical consideration of cities as they relate to virtue and the good life and even Catholicism directly, there's a collection of essays by an architecture professor at Notre Dame named Philip Bess. Uh, the book is called Till We Have Built Jerusalem. It can be a little difficult to find these days, but it's well worth the read if you want that kind of really meat and potatoes kind of treatment. Um, if you're looking for something a little lighter, uh, Sidewalks in the Kingdom, like Jacob already said, there's another couple of good books. Um, Walkable Cities by Jeff Speck just goes through some very practical considerations of what makes an enjoyable city. Um, and he, he wrote a sequel to that that even dives further into the practicalities, if that's what you're looking for, something that you can really dive in and start to affect in your own city. Um, and then of course the strong towns book, uh, is, is a really great place to start. And we'll, we'll put all sorts of other resources. Mm -hmm. We have quite a long list that we can share in, uh, in the show notes. One more that I will, and I've quoted it frequently while we're recording is uh, geography of nowhere, Mm -hmm. which is a really good history of development in America and kind of why things ended up the way they did. Yeah. So Check marvelous. out the show notes. It's marvelous. Boys, I have no I have no recommendations because I'm, you know, I'm here to learn. Mm-hmm. Um I mean you could read Ivan Illich, but I'll probably tell you that at other junctures. <laughs> no, Ivan Ivan Illich is quoted in Walkable City. Oh so, good. Yeah, yeah. No. I mean if you wanna if I guess if you are this far in the podcast, you probably don't really need the encouragement, but if you want to be um discouraged about the growth um, mentality that has dictated American development since the wars, really. Um, then Ivan Illich is certainly the guy to disabuse you of, of growth mindset. Help you despair um, of your undeserved hope. Yes. But I don't think you guys really need that. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> now, um, I would say, you know, as, as always, the topics that New Polity addresses are only really diverse in, in, in the application of more fundamental themes. And with Good Cities, I hope what we made clear is that once again, we, we face a choice between two cities. One city that is going to um, create the conditions necessary for a life of virtue, the love of neighbor, the love of neighbor, and the love of God. Um, and through that, create an order that comes from um, a common pursuit of the good, common pursuit of peace. And that the other city is going to be one that despairs in the capacity for virtue and so seeks extrinsic coercive structures in order to create as much peace as possible within a world that's essentially always at war. And within this podcast, we really considered the way in which um, we've chosen the wrong city. (laughs) 
um, and the way in which um, Catholics and Christians need to choose the city of God uh, once more. And so the good news is that it was never the case that man was the one who was going to make himself virtuous and thereby ensure that we could have the kinds of cities that we're talking about. It was never the case. In fact, that was probably the main mistake, was imagining that to be the case. It is in fact the case that Jesus Christ gives us the grace to be lawmakers once again, gives us the grace to be virtuous once again. He he gives us the grace to be able to wield authority outside of the zero-sum game of self-interest, but instead to wield authority for the good of others and ultimately for the glory of God. That's not a achievement of man, that is a gift from God. Um, and the good news that the Catholic Church preaches constantly is that uh, it's real, it really happened, we really have it. We have efficacious grace at our disposal. So just to encourage you as you go about this work to remember that it's not so much at the end of the day like tweaking the zoning laws or tweaking the constitutions mm-hmm. or tweaking the, the kind of ways you do it. It's At the end of the day, it's just another step in the pursuit of holiness. Um, and if we pursue holiness, then precisely in our desire to uh, become virtuous and help others become virtuous, we will start making the right decisions where we're yeah. also attaining these goods we want, these walkable cities, these beautiful facades, these, these um, comfortable pedestrian spaces, these well-built and creative houses, these things that we would hope for from city building. And these come as the fruit Amen. Um, of the pursuit of holiness. And yes. Jesus Christ always says, he says, well, at least he said it once, right? <laughs> Fear not, little flock. The Father wants to give you the kingdom. And so our goal here is to be willing and and fearless in the reception of the gift of God and not in the sort of, you know, craftiness of a, of a, of a man-made paradise here. So go to church, go to confession, go to mass and read those books. Um, Amen. Okay. Very good. All right, everyone. Thank you for uh, watching this podcast. We hope to have a Q and a soon and we hope, I hope to have a season two at some point. All right. God bless.